Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Christian Sparks, a writer and director whose first feature, Cast No Shadow, was nominated for four Canadian Screen Awards, including Best Picture and Best Adapted Screenplay. His latest, Hammer, stars Will Patton as a man trying to help his adult son, played by Mark O'Brien, friend of the show, get ahead of some very bad choices. It's now available on digital and on demand, and you should check it out. Christian picked Birth, Jonathan Glazer's austere 2004 drama about a young widow named Anna who, on the eve of her remarriage, is confronted by a 10-year-old boy who insists he's the reincarnation of her late husband, Sean. Nicole Kidman plays Anna, Cameron Bright plays the kid, and their strange duet becomes the core of this unique film, which explores some uncharted chambers of the human heart, as well as the chilly corridors of old money New York. There's a little bit of zoom echo in the mix, but hopefully you won't find it too distracting. Maybe it's our displaced souls. This is someone else's movie. It's it's interesting. I'm I'm a huge Glazer fan, and when people talk to me about you know who are some of your favorite filmmakers, Glazer often comes to mind. I can't always necessarily say why. Um, <laughs> I've been following him ever since I was in art school. A lot of people probably know him from you know Birth and Under the Skin in particular, but he's done a lot of really really great revolutionary TV commercials and music videos as well. And yeah. uh, he was ju- he's just such a great. I mean, one of the great stylists in the world. I think. Um, and uh, so that's the first thing that appealed to me when I was younger uh, and just his exploration um, into interesting subject as he's um, matured as an artist has really kind of kept my attention. So I thought this might be a good opportunity to, to go back in and explore one of his movies. Yeah, I'm really glad you picked it because it's one that I hadn't I hadn't seen since maybe 2005 when the DVD came out. Uh, I reviewed it theatrically, and then again when it came out on on disc, I watched it a second time because it, it, I wasn't the biggest fan of it. It's the one of his the the one of his three films that I like the least. Mm-hmm. But it is now, especially after Under the Skin, it makes a lot of sense to me. It, my problem with the film is that it's so muted that it ultimately suffocates itself. It's just so small that yeah. I I feel myself pushing for it to do more. But that's absolutely what he wants to do. And, that's and after kinda, Under the Skin, right? Like, the minimalism makes more sense. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, it's obviously all movies are subjective, but this particular style, that muted style of, like, of line delivery in particular, um, mm-hmm. really, really divides people. Um, you know, you see it a bunch in, in the Yorgos Lathamos films, especially, like, um, Killing of a Sacred Deer. The line deliveries are so flat that certain people just, they want to pull their hair out and they can't stand it, and other people are mesmerized by it. And I'm mesmerized by it personally. His command of like style and tone in a lot of ways in birth um, and under the skin, he feels like kind of the direct heir to Kubrick for me in a way that few other filmmakers kind of can achieve. And part of it is that, you know, a lot of Kubrick stuff too, people think has a kind of a flat, unaccessible um, quality to it. Yeah, it's that thing where you beat the actors down with multiple takes, so they just eventually stop trying to inject emotion yeah. i think and it it's strategic and I'm, I'm especially fascinated with the idea of nicole kidman making another movie after eyes wide shut where the same thing happens to her yes and that she's effectively playing another very similar character I and mean, these are both very well-placed society women who we assume married for love and mm-hmm. now find themselves in a different situation than they thought they would be in 
yeah. Alone in Birth. It's of course radically different, and that but that's where the comparison stops for me because this movie is so completely different. It's I I get the Kubrick vibe. It felt to me as though he was trying to have a conversation between Kubrick and Polanski with this one. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the makes... haircut can't help but recall Rosemary's Baby, and then the whole apartment vibe. Absolutely, no. That that's interesting. I um, it's funny when I was a young man, like a lot of people. Kubrick was one of my first loves, you know, like being a young film student who doesn't love a Kubrick movie. And he's, sure. he's a director, the legend that goes around his process. It's easy to become obsessed with him as an individual or an, an idea. And I remember leaving the theater after watching Birth. And for whatever reason, I felt like this was the closest to a Kubrick movie that I had seen. I feel that way about under the skin as well, definitely um, a lot of the um, opening shots were the creation of Scarlett Johansson or like when those dudes are kind of lured into that ooze. Yeah. Because a lot of it just comes down to such um, a command over the over the craft itself. It's such a like bravado technical achievement. Um, I think Birth is very much that as well. Obviously the setting, it's not quite as cold and clinical as a Kubrick movie. But it has like um, just such a great command of the craft. It has those flat line readings. And it also has a really dominant score. Um, so I think part of those flat readings allow the style and the, and the score to kind of rise to the forefront in a way that, you know, some people really like, some people don't. Yeah. And he has a, I keep trying to think of what to call it. It's, I guess, a merciless formalism, mm -hmm. I suppose, where not only is the frame exactingly composed, although I think this film has a little more handheld than any mm. of his others, mm -hmm. um, he he uses the frame to sort of to to drill into people, to really push the camera at his characters, not the actors, but the characters, so that we're seeing so much more than they want us to see. Uh, that's what this film does, even more so than the other two. Uh, on on rewatching it, I realized that, yeah. Everyone is hiding something. It's not just the question, the core question of faith or, or belief. Mm -hmm. It's that every single person is keeping their real self away from the other characters, and the camera sees it every time. I I, I agree. Um, I think that's an astute point, and I mean that's one of the things I really love about the the movie itself is like a lot of it is subtext. It's like obviously that much lauded shot of Nicole Kidman when she goes to the opera and it's like that three minute shot where the camera just pushes in and holds on her face. I mean, she's not saying anything, but we are projecting uh, a lot onto her. And I mean, it takes a really kind of confident filmmaker to do that, to kind of conceive of that. Um, it's funny, you know, as you were talking, I thought of another kind of connection to Kubrick that I really like about this too is... Um, the movie definitely, like, for a mainstream release, this was a, a New Line release in 2004, it really yep. embraces um, taboo and, and perversity in a way that few other films or filmmakers are willing to do. Obviously, Kubrick has, like, between Lolita and Clockwork Orange, he managed to take, you know, um, these very subversive kind of perverse texts and bring them into a mainstream presentation. So anyone who's yeah. willing to do that and shake up mainstream cinema, I, you already have my attention. Yeah, it's it's interesting too that the, the the world the film lets us into seems to be ready for perversity. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the the casual debauchery, the way that everyone has money, everyone has status. It's all presumed, um, and the casting in this case is just like Danny Houston right at peak sleaze, but before he tipped over into that guy you get when he plays sleazy people. Yes, um, well, he's great. Lauren Bacall just effortlessly embodying 
unconscious privilege, kindness, but and, unconscious and privilege. Also kind of like, I feel like to your initial point there, it's like, even though she's trying to like push her daughter not to fall in love with a 10 year old boy or whatever it is, you get this <laughs> sense of God kind of feeling from her or else I did. Maybe this says more about me, but that she wanted her daughter to be with him a little bit, even though she was saying otherwise, it's just like, like she's open to that kind of perversity. Um, same with the brother, um, uh, uh, Arliss Howard. You get I'm a sorry. sense that he's kind of like, he's amused by it, but a part of him is intrigued as well. Everyone is like, I mean, it is an intriguing concept. What what if someone returned, uh, a dead person returned as someone else? Um, so I know even, even those uh, secondary characters, I agree. Um, that's what makes the film really interesting. They kind of, they're intrigued by this in a way that the average person probably wouldn't be. Yeah, and the movie lets us stew in it too, which again the first time through I thought was a flaw of pacing, but mm-hmm. I think I really I think if it moved any faster it would be doing a disservice to the slow burn, to the to the the way the ideas have to percolate and tug at the back of our brains and and yeah. Just it seems to me now that it's less about whether or not a woman is reunited with her love, but whether she wants to be. Like whether I, I agree. Whether with, she's, yeah. she's prepared to... It's not a question of if she's prepared to believe it. It's whether that's what she needs or what she wants. And, and that question, that philosoph- you know, that philosophical question of what we would do if we were given the opportunity to pick up again, that's something that... It's never addressed. It's never discussed. It's just, it's just but it's in Kidman's face. It's there all the time. Yeah, and well, I mean, hopefully it's in the audience's mind when they leave the theater. I mean, that's what a lot of great art, I think, does. It's like you are kind of like bowled over by the technical prowess it's a visual medium you know so like he's such a great he has such a great command of tone with that script and 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 the and the and the style of the movie that upon first viewing and same with a lot of kubrick films you're kind of like put under a spell by the film i find and i've had that experience with this movie and it's only upon repeat viewings and when you leave the theater and you're driving home that you start to dig a little deeper about what the movie is actually saying, I mean, that's hard to do with art. I think that's what a lot of artists aspire to do. And I think Glazer just has an innate ability to do that. Yeah, it's it's possible, too, that just by injecting the tiniest bit, well, not the tiniest bit in some other cases, but the, the, the elements of stylization and surrealism that he does bring to all of his movies just push the genre topic in a direction that becomes stickier and weirder and messier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the... The rabbit creature in Sexy Beast, which is absolutely not the Sexy Beast of the title, even though somebody on the way out of the screening asked me if that was the case. And I was like, I'm yes. pretty sure it's not, but <laughs> now we have to have an argument about it, which I yeah, think yeah. is what the movie wants. Yeah. And and you know, like everything about Under the Skin is left open for debate. Yeah, well, I think that's a full, um, a f- fully realized... Like, I think he was going down that road. Like, we talk about birth has, like, a lot is subtext and a lot is kind of obscure. You leave the theater kind of questioning... Um, you know, what the artist is trying to say, but also even the central question of like, you know, on first viewing, I may not have got this, but upon repeat viewings, you're like, well, was Sean actually the husband? Um, do you know what I mean? Was he just a yeah. little boy? It's even, I think it's still up for debate depending on who, who when you watch it, how you feel. I, yeah, like, to belie- I, th- I like to believe that he was personally. Um, what do you think? I think that it's deliberately, I think the film provides the answer. Uh, I don't want to spoil it to people who haven't seen it yet. Um, but I think the answer is in the movie. I think it's pretty clear. Uh, I also think the only way the film can work is if you don't get a, 
a definitive dialogue driven answer mm-hmm. and, and you know like Sean himself never breaks the story up. Like mm-hmm. he never he never cracks, he never drops his story. If mm-hmm. it's true, he believes it. If it's not true, he believes it. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you're talking about either a ghost story or a, a story of a ten year old sociopath. Yes. Which which yeah. is what's so fascinating about Cameron Bright's career mm-hmm. is that he was repeatedly cast as monster children. Yes. Well I mean And so Yeah. That's how Hollywood works, eh? It's like they see yeah. it as one thing, yeah. Yeah. But putting him in this, same as Danny Houston, gives you a disconnect because the movie is using that for a reason. Like it's, it's, there's a purpose to the casting and it's the eerie looking kid who mm. would look like if he was a reincarnated t- uh, person at 10 years old, he wouldn't act or move like a 10 year old. He'd look mm. weird. It makes sense that you cast this kid. Yeah. Uh, but also if he's playing someone who's just a really good manipulator, it makes sense that you would cast this kid. It's like the that's film true. doesn't want to give you the, the, the out either way. That, that's a good way of looking at it. It's, it's, it's also a, um, a very challenging role. I'm sure he didn't necessarily have to think about this as he was doing it, but the idea that we never meet the husband. Um, yeah, we only see him as a... Yeah, we only hear his voice an at, idea, the, right? at the beginning, which seems odd. Uh, I guess it works in a way. I don't know if it's necessary, that VO that they have over the credits. Um, uh, it feels a bit literal in a way. I'm not sure it was necessary, but... Um, you know, as the film goes, I personally like want Nicole Kidman to be with this boy. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's like, cause I feel like the boy is the husband and I want him to be the husband. And so it's like a great trick on the filmmaker's part to make you feel that way, even though it's kind of so taboo and so kind of odd and bizarre. Um, if you're romantic at heart and you think that this could be the husband, I mean, <laughs> you kind of do want them. Maybe you want them to be together in 10 years from now, but yeah. 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 Uh, he is absolutely a more attentive companion than her ostensible fiance. Uh, yeah. You know, Joseph's not the best guy. He's 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 very refined, and he's again Danny Houston, right? That's why you cast him. You get this image of refinement and genteel manners, and underneath it is just a greedy, grabbing asshole who wants what he wants well, it's and won't be told no. I, I don't really view him that way. Um, in uh, in hindsight, I can see projecting that on him because he often does definitely feel like that guy. Um, yeah. But uh, so, I just feel like he's kind of like um, pathetic and outmatched. Like it opens with him at the engagement party or whatever. It's like, I asked her once. She said no. I asked her twice. She said no. Finally, she said yes. And he just seems like he's kind of willing. I mean, it's hard to love someone that doesn't love you back. And uh, he set up that way, I think, in the beginning so that it's like, I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with him. He's wealthy, but that is not necessarily a character flaw. Uh, Uh But because he he has a certain patheticness about him that I feel like I I just want better for. I want her to be with more of like a manly man or something. Sure. Yeah. And to me, that story he tells tells me that he just didn't take no for an answer, and that's mm-hmm. not a great quality in a person. Mm-hmm. It explains, you know, like it's why he's successful in whatever it is he does. It's it clearly the whole captain of industry vibe comes from not taking no for an answer. But it's also like there must be so many other terrible stories of his attempted courtships that we're not hearing. And maybe it yes. is just the retroactive Danny Houston of it all. But yeah, he's just like, it's, that's why he's perfectly cast. Yeah. It's true. And even, um, it's funny. I mean, I, it, it must be a blessing and a curse to be Danny Houston because <laughs> even thinking, I mean, it's hard not to think about his father when you watch sure. him on screen, you know, you just bring a lot to, he, he brings a lot with him. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, um, I mean, this is right around the time too, where he, he was working with Bernard. Like he was making, 
well, I was going to say he was making fewer big budget movies, but he was doing a lot of studio stuff. But he was still making a concerted effort to do things with Bernard Rose and and yeah. and Glazer and other and other actors directors who weren't necessarily interested in using him as the villain in the Wolverine movie and, yeah, and all absolutely. that stuff. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. And he did. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, Children of Men. I'm not sure what year that was. I tend to it's think the, of, 2005 it was right around the corner. Oh, nice. Okay, yeah. I tend to think of him that movie when I think of him as well. Yeah. yeah, it could be the same character again, playing playing the same guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Isn't it, well, it doesn't have the accent, but other than that, yeah, it's yeah. really close. Yeah, and maybe he just picked it up in the twenty years he moved. He, he his heart breaks. He moves to England. Everything goes to hell, and then he's in a perfect position. Yeah, that's I true. Right? Funny, I never thought about it that way. But yeah, no, you raise a you raise a good point. And yes. to, to your earlier point, it's um, all the casting is I know handpicked by Glazer. I'm sure he probably got his first choice in in everyone. I mean, if you have Bacall and Kidman, you're probably everyone else is probably saying yes. I assume uh, so, yeah. But everyone does a great job. And Anne Heche, I mean, I can't pretend to be like um, aficionado of, of her filmography, but she's never been better. I mean, she's so good in limited screen time in this movie. No, she's great. And Alison Elliott, who had, you know, who I've loved since, I'm guessing, Soderbergh's The Underneath, mm-hmm. uh, and who has never really gotten her due. I think she does a lot of television these days, but whenever yeah. she pops up in a movie, it, it takes, takes me about two minutes, minutes to remember where she's from, and it's like, oh, I love her. Look at that. Someone yeah, caught it. Someone, someone remembered. remembered. Well, it's funny. She, um, she, her her real-life partner is Will Patton, and um, Will Patton was in the movie that I just made. Uh, I did not know that. So just to bring it full circle, uh, oh. a movie called Hammer, um, Will Patton and Mark O'Brien, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, early on, um, I've, I've been typically working in St. John's, Newfoundland on smaller scale things. So to work with uh, Will Patton was a pleasure. But then to be out to dinner and then he's, he's telling Jonathan Glazer stories secondhand was quite <laughs> it was quite enjoyable for me. And he told this great story about how um, Allison told him secondhand that how frustrated Bacall was working with Glazer because he kept wanting to flatten out the performance and she kept thinking like i can't possibly get it any flatter than this but uh he kept pushing and pushing and ultimately um it helps aid the tone that the film has again some people really respond to that other people it drives them nuts you know (laughs) yeah oh man that must have been fascinating yeah just and to watch to watch anyone direct learn bacall Mm-hmm. Or anybody you know who came from an entirely different universe as far as cinema was sure. perceived and as far as it was made, yeah, because it is. I mean, she's clearly there because if you're casting someone who is a, a matriarchal figure in in you know upper class New York, she's mm-hmm. like she's perfect for it. Absolutely. But she's also this link to a whole history of of life as well as Hollywood, right? Because if, if you're, you're going to cast Bogart's widow mm-hmm. in a film about someone who comes back or someone who is who's torn and tormented by the idea of it, you just can't help but think, oh, that's right, they didn't have that much time together either. No, and, it's and, true, and I guess it almost feels like it almost feels like a bit of a coming out party for someone like Glazer to have someone like that in your movie. I feel like it's you sure. know it's like you've you've reached the next level of um, Hollywood acceptance. You know, now that you have as someone that iconic in your film, I'm sure yeah, he, no. I'm sure he was pleased. As a second feature, it's. It's a pretty heavy vote of confidence for all of these people to be working with him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Although I suppose, you know, like he he had Kingsley in the first film, so it's not like he was yes, no, struggling for talent. But but it, this is a different language than, and a much more aggressively experimental film. Because Sexy Beast in 2000 is an easy pitch. Yes. You know, it's, a gangster, it's a British gangster picture. There's yep. a million of them. We all know what that looks like. We all know what that feels like. Mm-hmm. Here, and, you know, the, we were talking about this before we started recording... 
the original pitch was not this film, right? Like the original concept for this movie was from Sean's point of view. It was the kid's story as opposed to the widow's. And that's a radically different project. Absolutely. And I, I can imagine with an actress uh, like Bacall, who's been around for so long, I don't have any experience with this, but... You know, the idea of working with exciting young directors with new, unique visions, I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? It's not like Lauren McCall needs to be reinvented. But, uh, you know, you want to stay relevant and you want to work with, I'm sure the desire to work with interesting, young, innovative talent never goes away. I would hope so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, she didn't do a lot in the 2000s. Uh, I think the only other, unless I'm forgetting something really obvious, her only other major credit would have been the Barbara Streisand movie, The Mirror Has Two Faces. Okay, a yeah, few I've, years I've never earlier. Seen it. That's like that's probably like ninety seven, ninety eight. Okay, yeah, and you're I, probably right. Uh, yeah, I, nothing comes to mind certainly. Yeah, so yeah. it is. It's absolutely like signing on to something like this is is a huge vote of confidence. But yeah, I can imagine her responding to it too. It's not like physically demanding. It's just a really interesting acting challenge. Absolutely. Although, and although it, apparently she was not totally happy with the acting part. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a lot of... I mean, you hear anecdotes all the time over the years. It's like, if you're enjoying yourself on set, the movie's probably not amazing. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, there's yeah. certainly a lot of cases of people who struggled. And I mean, I think a lot of times actors, it's not your job to see the whole movie or even your role in it. It's just, you know, your job to embody the character who you're supposed to play. And that involves a leap of faith and trust in, in the director. So even though she was frustrated, I have a feeling she was probably pleased uh, with the end product, I, I wonder. I mean, with actors like that, I wonder if box office performance and Rotten Tomato scores, you know, we're all uh, sensitive at the end of the day. I wonder if that affects their perception of the film, if they need box office or critical feedback to be redeemed or whether or not they can view it uh, on its own merits. It's, it's interesting. I, I wonder. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with an actor about that at length. I know that Sometimes people are hurt by particular criticisms of something if they feel they didn't get their point across, yeah. the, the idea, or, you know, but but for an actor, too, I mean, you, I think it's probably more important for actors than filmmakers to let go of stuff after it's been done, just because sure. they don't have the final say the way a director or an editor does. Yeah, and it's also not like, um, if you wrote and directed something, or even just wrote or directed reviews tend to feel personal because it's like, um, you know, it's hard to escape as an artist when someone is critiquing your work. They might as well be critiquing your, your soul, right? Yeah. So it's like, it's tough. Whereas an actor, um, even though certainly committed to the project and wanting the most for it, they don't, they haven't necessarily been living with it for three, four, five years, whatever that may be. Exactly, yeah. And um, somebody, who was it? Oh, shoot, I can't remember, but a good 15, it might have been Harvey Keitel. Um, yeah, I bet it was. I think it was Harvey Keitel. I interviewed him maybe 10 years ago for something, and we ended up talking about coffee in Europe for most of the conversation because that was his, that was his memory of a film that I said, you know, I, I oh, his I can do this. The first, the second movie I ever reviewed uh, professionally was The Inquiry, which is this absolutely, absolutely forgettable and forgotten movie that Keitel made in Spain and Italy the same time, like either right before or right after Last Temptation of Christ. Mm -hmm. And in that one, he played Pontius Pilate, um, who is resisting an inquiry of the disappearance of Christ's bones. Hmm. And the story is told from the point of view, I think it was Keith Carradine of the, of the centurion detective who sent out to, from Rome to find out what happened. And, mm -hmm. you know, this, this activist gets killed and then the body disappears and what's going on. 
And it was actually remade a couple of years ago as a film called Risen, which, again, hmm. nobody remembers. Sure. Um, terrible movie, uh, both times. And I talked to, I, I mentioned it to Kaitel, and he's like, oh, you know, nobody liked that, but I had the best dinners. <laughs> and it was just about this experience of his experience. And so he ended up telling me, like, if you're ever in Italy, there's this one place outside Rome that has the best coffee. And Amazing. it's all because he made this little movie. And yeah. that's his takeaway, right? I don't sure. think, and Harvey Keitel in 1987-88 was making a lot of movies for, for you know, like, for paychecks. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he took any of it personally, which I find fascinating. I don't think he even remembers half the films he shot, but he remembers the the, yeah. the afternoons and the evenings and the hangouts. Well, that makes sense, I think, of your Harvey Keitel. <laughs> if, if, if you are if you're if you're already like a known commodity and everyone you know knows your name, um, I think sure. the way you perceive, or like you just um, you're not as worried about how people uh, perceive you because you are a um, uh, an industry in unto yourself in a way that like sure. you know people who are up and coming probably view it very very differently. But <laughs> it's uh, I'm sure it's case specific at, at the same time. Yeah, if you put your heart and soul into a performance and then no one sees it or somebody says that it's you know, pitchy or whatever it is that they say on American Idol. It's, yeah, it, it seems, it seems unnecessarily cruel, mm-hmm. I think, to to really go after individual actors like that. I mean, I have seen people give bad performances and I have seen people make choices that make the movie worse. Sure. But unless it's something that egregious, it just doesn't seem necessary. And yeah. also I've seen, I've seen performances that turn out to be salvaged by the editor or the or the director, and and at one at one at least one incident, a director was very happy to tell me that he fixed something. And it's like, yeah, well, that's not a great story to tell about your actor, but okay. Well, even I think too, like um, you also have the case where like some films only get their due a decade later, which is a whole other thing. Like honestly, like um, I would say I don't want to say ninety percent, but a high majority of filmmakers I speak to absolutely love birth and consider it like an all-time great film like i find most filmmakers who are very kind of um serious about filmmaking and maybe it's just i'm talking to people who have similar tastes to me sure. um, but Even if uh, it comes up in conversation you're probably already having a good time yeah it's well, not like yeah and I think it's just one of those ones that maybe even when it came out wasn't seen by necessarily everybody, but over time is a um, uh, is a film that I know a lot of filmmakers really really think think highly of and is a really interesting piece of work. Yeah, I'm actually just quietly checking to be sure. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but I want to be positive about this. I don't believe there is a Blu-ray anywhere of the film, um, hmm. which is weird I because what, you would think. By yeah, now. I wondered what year that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of when, like, kind of like the the DVD to Blu-ray, uh, when all of that started dying out, kind of in a way. Uh, well, Birth was 2004. Yeah, 2004. The DVD came out in 2005. There are no extras on it, which I still find bizarre. But there is like nothing. Yeah. Uh, and New Line was New Line was pretty good about that stuff. If they I mean, they were doing their signature series and their their specialty line, and if there were special features to include, they would have included them. So I sure. can only assume Glazer didn't want to put anything on it. Yeah. But uh, there's never been a Blu-ray. I again, I'm hoping that because New Line and Warner now have a licensing agreement with Criterion, that that will turn up eventually because it should. Uh, there's no sure. decent Blu-ray of Sexy Beast in America either. I had to uh, I had to get it from Twilight Time, which is now out of print. Oh, that's really interesting. It's, yeah, it's funny. and uh, Under the Skin got a, a really good package, so it's not like he's averse to them. I think he just uh, he was either not interested in those two or 
hmm. the studio support wasn't there. Uh, yeah, I wonder what his feeling about them is. I um, for me personally, you know, the thing that has kind of endured a lot about the the movie is the um, the score. I uh, it's one of the first things that grabbed me when I saw the movie in theaters. It's a big like Alexander Desplat has obviously mm-hmm. gone on to be quite. I mean, he won the Oscar for Shape of Water, and he scored a lot of really. He's one of the go-to composers. Um, oftentimes for more lush, kind of interesting work like this. But he's also done Zero Dark Thirty and some kind of starker scores as well. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's just one of those ones that I listen to actually for pleasure and often have ever since the movie was uh, released. I found, and I mean, this is like mid-2000, so somehow I came across the score. And uh, when I think about the movie, when my mind drifts to there at random times, the score is often the first thing that comes to mind. I don't know how you feel about it. I remember being overwhelmed by it the first time because it seemed like such a counterpoint to the minimalism of the performances. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wondered, I remember wondering at some point, a second time around, I think it was, if it was an attempt to uh, make the film feel bigger. Hmm. But that, that mean- implies that Glazer didn't want the film to feel small, which I don't think is the case. I, I think that... The score exists to fill in the emotions that the characters aren't allowing themselves to reveal. So that's where the drama comes from. And the conflict in in the film, the conflict on the screen is between internal and external. Mm -hmm. And the score is the one telling us that there's great feeling happening. We're just not allowed to see it. Yeah, well, the the interesting thing is, I think, um, further to that point, you could almost argue that the score, it's scoring the subtext Mm. um, in a lot of ways as, as, as scoring the, like, external conflict, which... Not a lot of movies necessarily do. Um, it's great when films do do that. It's a great approach in general, I think, to score what the characters are, are thinking and feeling. Um, you know, whether or not it was, like, um, conceived that way or uh, whether or not they were just basically scrambling to, like, bring up the emotion or, like, uh, you know, to be able to relate to the characters, who knows? I, I choose to believe that it was intentional because Glazer just feels like such an intentional filmmaker to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't think it's an accident. I I don't know that coming off Sexy Beast and with the support of, of Kidman, who just won the Oscar for the, the hours and all that, that he was getting any pushback from New Line. Mm-hmm. Uh, New Line wasn't especially difficult to work with at that time. I don't think mm-hmm. the uh, they were they were fight they were actively fighting. Well, Fine Line I guess was doing more of it, but they were actively fighting Miramax for dominance in the art house sphere. Right. Oh yeah, that's interesting. Hey, yeah, you would know more about that kind of context than than I would, but that's. That's just, I'm not surprised to hear you say that, yeah. Yeah, well, I, that that is true. I was going to ask you, um, I'm a little older, so wh- uh, how old would you have been when you saw Birth? Well, I saw Birth when I was 25. Okay, so you pretty much had your, your artistic consciousness was already formed. Definitely, I think so, but it was probably late forming in a way because I grew up in St. John's, Newfoundland, and so there was no, like, it wasn't until I went away to film school in Halifax, the metropolis that is Halifax, that, uh, you, that, you know, you could go to a video store or a video store that even had like just even say a Woody Allen movie, let alone like Kurosawa or Bergman or anything like that. So I also grew up at three brothers. Um, so, uh, you know, I had a, a steady diet of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Van Damme, these kind of things right. growing up. And it was only once I kind of um, I mean, I was interested in films when I was younger, like Kubrick was accessible because he he had found a way to break through to the mainstream and Scorsese. And so once I was in my teens, I started to kind of understand some of that. And then I I remember I saw The Thin Red Line at a young age, and that's one of the movies that really kind of cracked my mind open to the kind of philosophical side of storytelling and what was possible. 
Um, oh yeah, yeah, I and can then absolutely I, see that. Yeah, yeah, and then I kind of. Um, and then I moved away, and, and uh, it was only probably in my mid twenties that I started even having access to a lot of these uh, uh, to world cinema in general. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's increasingly difficult for the new, the current generation to imagine um, how difficult it was to see certain movies. Yeah. In the in the olden times, um, I mean, I like I was watching Hong Kong action movies on laserdisc. Is how old I am. Right. Yeah. Uh, because they were available <laughs> in the import store. Yeah, uh, up where I lived, but that was my experience. That's how I learned about John Woo and and Andy Lau and all the other key movements of the '80s that didn't make it into theaters sure. here, uh, let alone see video releases. And then you develop a taste for the art house, and then you go to school and you find out that there are other people who feel the same way you do. So you're not going to movies alone as much, and that becomes a different experience. And, and now, like everything, if nothing, unless. Yeah, I have three or four movies that are on VHS that were never released on any other format. That's basically yes. the only thing I can think of that's difficult to find. Well, it seems like it would be a utopia um, because yeah, everything is dead. available. But it's like, you know, that great Kubrick quote, um, you know, um, when everything is beautiful, nothing is beautiful. So it's like when you have everything at your fingertips, um, you certainly don't covet um, the the work like you used to when you were younger. I mean, we don't need to go on about lamenting about Blockbuster or, or these days. But, uh, yeah, it's certainly, well, it's certainly changing at a rapid rate. Yeah, and we're doing this on Zoom so you can see behind me the physical library that I will never relinquish. Yes, well, I am, uh, I'm the same way. I still have a ton of VHS, believe it or not. You probably do as well. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, just for more like nostalgia than anything. But uh, who knows, man? One day we, maybe we're going to be happy we had these hard copies. Yeah, I guarantee it's going to be sooner rather than later. It's uh, yeah. Uh, as and as a matter of fact, this gets us back to another point about birth, which is that it's not available to stream anywhere. It's on it's on iTunes and I think it's on Google Play, but it's not on a streaming service. You can't get it on Amazon. It is very difficult to find the DVDs. Mm. It's weird that a major film from a major filmmaker who's only made three movies mm-hmm. uh, could disappear almost entirely. I, I guess it hasn't disappeared if it's on iTunes, but yeah. it's just, it's harder to stumble across it. It's that's, um, that's interesting. I wonder, like, I have the DVD, like, that's what I watched um, when I watched it again before you and I chatted. Sure. Um, yeah, and, and, so, and a lot of filmmakers I talk to um, talk about it. Uh, again, in like glowing terms, um, a random uh, swath of people. So I wonder, are they just talking about their memories, I wonder? Or do they have the DVD? You, you raise a good point. I, I don't know. Yeah. What was the last... I guess the question is, what was the last time these people saw it? And, mm-hmm. you know, and in what format? It's, it's harder now, too, to imagine somebody queuing it up on a laptop and watching it. Because it's just... That's not what this movie is for. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, I'm lucky enough that I have a projector and you can really... You can immerse yourself in a, in a yeah. repeat viewing that way. But it's another one of those things where, yeah, there's... This is a film that people are going to come to uh, because they seek it out. Not because they stumble across it. You know, the old idea of flipping past channels on cable and looking, seeing someone who looks interesting... Um, doing something you don't understand mm-hmm. pulling you into a movie i saw dozens of or i discovered dozens of films that way sure. and went out and found them and watched them from the beginning well i think it's but, a um yeah it's it's probably like a small but very um passionate fan base like a lot of great artists like glazer is still relatively obscure i think you probably have to be like a cinephile or like really on top of uh, what's happening in, in, in world cinema to be a Glazer fan. And I think mm-hmm. Glazer is probably the only thing that's going to lead you to birth. Like, I, I don't see you getting to birth through Kidman necessarily. 
<laughs> Do you know what I mean? I yeah. mean, it's, it's, it's certainly weird, possible. Right? It does feel to me that Kidman has made some of the most interesting films for some really great directors that get pushed aside. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Margot at the Wedding is another one for me. The, the, yes. This tiny, perfect Noah Baumbach misery film, which is, like I think, his darkest... Uh, that and Greenberg are the two together, mm-hmm. but Margot is even meaner and crueler and darker. Mm-hmm. And it's another one that's just disappeared. It's almost impossible to find. And yeah. I don't know why. I don't know what happened. Well, if we've established anything today, it's that birth needs some more love. And hopefully <laughs> people listening to this will go seek it out. Though I can't point to, you said it's on um, Google Play? I, iTunes at least, and I think maybe also oh, Google. So it is available. available. New Line put it out there Yeah, uh, digitally. It's just that it's not on a streaming service. And, and I also love the idea that we're recommending it to people, who some of whom will be disappointed by it. Because Glazer doesn't make movies that everybody likes. All three of his films have been... Like aggressively rejected by a certain percentage of the viewership, I yes. just I find that absolutely fascinating that he refuses to mainstream his stuff out, no matter how many stars he has, no matter how many um, genre points he can hit. Mm-hmm. He just wants to do the thing he wants to do. I uh, I absolutely agree. I um and I mean again, it it seems like it's going to be interesting to see what direction he goes. Um, next after Under the Skin because that seems like he's not not that he's gone to the end of the line with pushing that art house style but he went pretty close to the end of the line there of like in like willfully kind of alienating people I think while totally enamoring others I mean you know it's uh it's wildly um widely regarded as a, a classic film it's on a lot of best of lists of whatever year that came out I think it was only a couple of years ago now um, I think his next adaptation that's like 2013 or 14 it's further away than you think yeah, yeah. I know time is funny that way. Yeah. Uh, I think his his next film is going to be an, an adaptation of um, In and Around um, World War II and Auschwitz and a relationship between an officer, his wife, and another commandant, I believe. Um, oh. Yeah, so, uh, you know, him tackling that material, um, I'm sure he will come up with something subversive and interesting, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, that sounds really... That sounds... Actually, that sounds really generic, and that makes me really excited about because it, it won't be whatever it is he does. Yeah. It won't be that. Well, the great thing about Glazer too, he's one of those few directors who, like, if you like, just say someone like uh, I'm trying to think of like someone who's not well known, but in the past ten years, like um, maybe like Bennett Miller, or if you like Jeff Nichols, or someone like this, you kind of yeah. have to wait five, six years, oftentimes in between. But Glazer always has these little great music videos or TV commercials or art films that pop up. So if you like Birth or, or if you like Under the Skin, there's a whole um, rich kind of history of stuff that he's made online in like short digestible format, which is great. Yeah, I think I still have, in fact, I'm sure I still have that director's DVD that Polygram put out a few years ago, or Palm Pictures a few years ago. It's probably like 20 now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did director series. It was him and Chris Cunningham and Gondry. Mm-hmm. I think it was just those three, but there might have been a fourth. It's but the Glazer disc is, I think, my favorite one. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Even the menu, uh, that funny, like, he plays like a homeless guy, or, or he's asking a homeless, like, the, the setup menu for the DVD is basically, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it, it alludes to the fact that Glazer got all of his ideas from like a homeless guy? I think so, yeah. I think yeah. that's the one. Yeah, it's uh, it's very clever, very very fun. I agree. That's actually, um, 
I had seen, I guess, Sexy Beast and um, Birth. But once that director series DVD came out, probably only a couple of years later, that's what really opened my eyes uh, to, to his work. And then, you know, I went on YouTube and Google and that's where you could start to dig deeper as the internet basically expanded to include everything. Yeah, God, now it'll all be in HD too. Yeah. You can yeah. really just gorge on it. Uh, well, this the question of ideas and, and inspiration actually gets me to the to the the other question of the podcast, which is: Is there anything from Birth or from Glazer's other work that you've absconded with or used or incorporated? I, I don't. I've been trying to think if there's anything in Cast No Shadow, and there really isn't. It's not that kind of film, but maybe tonally there is a link that I missed. Some kind of yeah, questing I, form. I think so. I mean. Um... There's definitely an argument to be made. Like, obviously, um, I think Birth is probably most easily listed as a thriller. Um, but I think mm -hmm. it's also kind of a dark fable, you know, about, you know, the power and destruction of love. Not to be too pat, but I think that's, you know, a big part of what the film is about. And, and I think so, yeah. The theme that it's tackling. Um, and it also has kind of a, the music in particular has a very much a fairy tale, a dark fairy tale fable kind of quality. Um, you know, there's three or four times in the movie the characters say, you know, someone is under a spell or the boy is under a spell. And the music feels like an, a literal yeah. representation of that idea. Um, so I think Cast No Shadow in a lot of ways um, is a dark fable. The music is very much kind of similar. It has a fair, dark fairy tale quality, kind of lush, um, kind of classical. Um, I'm not comparing myself to Glazer, but I think there's definitely some... <laughs> Um, uh, parallels there. I, I never had Glazer in mind when I was making it, but you know, all art that you love, I'm sure, finds its way into your work in different ways. If, yeah. If anything, though, moving forward, Under the Skin in particular, I really like um, something about Glazer. I like the idea of a young artist at the at the height of their powers and choosing to go left and make mainstream work that can be at times obtuse and raise a lot of questions and be um, unafraid to alienate part of the audience for its, in, in like its quest to be singular. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think P.T. Anderson, you could argue, has been doing that with The Master. Um, and uh, and uh, what were the ones after The Master? Oh, I mean, even, I was going to say, even something like Inherent Vice, which is mm -hmm. supposedly a mainstream film, but, you know, what if Robert Altman did it this way you know, he took a mystery and made it even more incomprehensible it's it's his long goodbye right but it's yes. also textured and and sculpted to look like nothing else in the world absolutely uh, yeah yeah in the same way that uh well phantom thread is a conventional story mm -hmm. just not told in a conventional way at all but so yeah so the two of them they kind of they're probably my like favorite contemporary filmmakers um in a way, like I like um, Wes Anderson and Tarantino, other mainstream um, filmmakers uh, as well. But, you know, there's an argument to be made that they tend to just keep making the same movie uh, over and over again. Wes Anderson, probably less so. Tarantino, I think, absolutely. Um, so I admire what Glazer and P.T. Anderson are kind of willing to do. I find it very inspiring. Um, with so much content being made these days, so many people making films... Um, I'd like to like you know continue to push myself uh, push myself story wise to make a little more obtuse challenging work at times. I think the world could use more of it, so I appreciate these guys doing that. Yeah, well, and Hammer is similarly. Uh, it's not about what it's about, right? Like it's it's mm -hmm. the, the the thriller plotline is just the skeleton on which you hang. I thought a really interesting meditation on on family and on on what parents will do for their children. Absolutely, it is. Yeah, no, I I agree. Um, 
you know, um, hopefully I'd like to like make a, 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 a seismic leap for uh, moving forward in terms of just pushing the boundaries of storytelling and what I'm capable of. I have a distinct feeling, maybe a lot of artists feel this way, but I haven't quite been able to like um, convey the ideas that are in my head or I've been making movies just based on, you know, a, a certain amount of innate talent um, and experience up to this point. But I'm looking forward to making significant jumps uh, in the future. That's for sure. My thanks to Christian Sparks, whose new film Hammer is available on digital and on demand right now. Thanks also to Angie Power. She knows what she did. Christian's not on Twitter, but you can keep an eye on him at Hammer the Movie, all one word, and you can find Birth on DVD from New Line Home Entertainment. It's also available in HD on Apple TV and Google Play. I'm still hoping Criterion has plans for it. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days, and our TIFF 2020 coverage is already rolling in. So go to the website now and you'll see previews. The reviews will start coming up soon. It's going to be a whole thing. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it or this show in general, please say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. Black Tea's coming back. Stay inside. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. I'll see you next time.